Welcome to Unorthodox's long-awaited superstitions episode. There might be cursing, and there will definitely be curses, so proceed with caution. This has been your obscenity warning. If you step over someone, you will break their life in half. Do not sit at the corner of a table because no one will marry you. I'm sure you got plenty of calls about parents who said not to leave an umbrella open indoors because it would rain on your wedding day. Do not wear your clothes inside out because you'll get beaten up. I had an Israeli boyfriend and he thought it was bad luck to walk around with just one shoe on. Do not wear only one shoe or a parent will die. Whenever my mother would sew something on me while I was wearing the garment, she asked me to chew. It could be gum, a piece of thread, or just pretend I was chewing on something, like So my brains would not be sewn up. Do not say goodbye uh, or shake hands over the threshold of, uh, or, you know, the doorway of a house. A friend of mine told me that her grandfather, who was originally from Russia, had a very complicated process for warding off the evil eye. He would say, no Kanahara's poo poo poo. He would pull down one eyelid a little by pulling down on his cheek. He would spin three times around in a circle and he would spit. And apparently this was a fake spit, not a real spit because that would be disgusting. Never ever whistle in the house uh, as this will make all the money blow out. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, and you just heard a little taste of all the responses that you called in when we asked about your family's superstitions. I am Mark Oppenheimer, here as ever with my co-host, Liel Leibowitz. Tfoo, tfoo, tfoo. And Stephanie Butnick. Patooey, patooey. So I know that thing only from the old Coffee Talk skit on Saturday Night Live. Like, I didn't know. You've heard people go patooey, patooey. Oh, my God. Like, every day growing up. So anyway, um, yeah, there was a lot of superstitions. People called in. They wrote in. There were all these ones we'd never heard of. Here's the thing. Like, I will just come entirely clean uh, about my family and superstitions and say that, honestly, I don't think we had any. Okay, so I want to hear about how you guys grew up, because the three of us all grew up in, you know, different Jewish circumstances. Liel. Liel Leibowitz. <laughs> oh, my. You, like, mocked me with your eyes when I said, but Jews don't do superstition. Like, That's you, you grew up in I a- didn't know that Jews did anything but superstition <laughs> until I was, like, 23. I was like, oh, there's a religious component to it? Okay, it's but not it's just your- throwing salt in the corner of a room? That's like, nice. Like, just give us, like, what did you grow up with? What what what, what was in the, the air when you were growing up? So there were two stages, really, to, to my superstitious education. The first is, is growing up with, uh, with my mother, uh, who never met a superstition she didn't immediately adopt and then improved upon. Uh, a, a small selection would be um, upturned shoes or uh, an affront to God, uh, doors left open or portals to other dimensions and demons may come, books left open, tempt the demons Might get to red. steal the knowledge <laughs> and then use it against you. There's a whole host, part of which, you know, the book stuff, for example, is straight out of the Talmud. Right. You know, uh, right. but part of which is really just crazy. <laughs> like the shoe part is crazy. So, wait, what do you mean upturned shoes? Like, if the shoes are turned upside down. Oh, meaning you uh, should not be looking at the soles of them? Never. So then you go to the army. 
and you think you've you've done with uh you're done with all this you know judgment and now you could be a, a tough no nonsense type of guy and then you realize that because the army is a bunch of young people who realize very early on that literally you could die tomorrow for no reason that you could control and it's all luck of the draw you realize the army is the world's most superstitious place you never take your picture before you go on duty so it's not like a first day of school picture where like because if you take your picture you're basically saying you know like, last was, will and testament this is the picture I, I know to use where when this i die comes uh-huh. from when there was like a, a camera and everyone had to like the guy had to go under the thing and it was their whole family but it's like we live in the era of selfies and i almost think that like it's interesting to see the way that some superstitions have continued to sort of pervade our culture and they 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 make no sense as we get into this like greater and greater technological eras right but death makes no sense you know how, how do you how do you come to terms with that you, well you're gonna play the d card yeah you cling on to these ridiculous <laughs> things and like oh yeah no i'm not gonna die today because i didn't take a selfie well it's all right fact madame Rasio, R- rationalist stephanie butnick what about you do you have superstitions so- I didn't really grow up with superstitions. However, I'm a very anxious person. My superstitions were not Jewish. They were like, if I count to three on this foot and then I, I don't walk over the crack. And uh, if I if I count every single line on the side of the like of the middle of the road, then I and if I land on the left side. Did so, you make these up yourself? So but there's. So basically, as my therapist explains, like superstitious <laughs> behavior is basically like a lot of it is intrusive thoughts. It's, it's anxiety. It's OCD. It's OCD, basically. Right. It's like a, it's like a low grade, you know, like a, the entry level obsessive behavior. And think about it. It makes perfect sense. And so I've actually tried in my effort to be a less anxious person to to rid myself of this, like, if the third car stops, if I or like if the third car comes and I get this taxi or I get into that, like that actually is not helpful thinking for me. And so I'm curious about the ways in which Jews actually this this is bred of anxiety and a sense of trying to have some control in the shtetls in these like in the pogrom era See, to have some control over just a world that makes no sense. Stephanie, I'm I'm not buying this at all. And I'll tell you why. I actually think this is like one of the of the terrible things that modernity had done because like you read the Talmud and there are literally demons everywhere. These very very wise rabbis who you know forged our religion for us literally had these ridiculous beliefs that like if you wanted to see the demons, you found the the young cat who was born of the older cat and like took its placenta and like cooked it and put it in your eye and then you could see the demons so we used to believe in that and then we took these amazing concepts this amazing world in which you literally did battle with the sitra akhra you know with the other side with darkness and then we said oh no 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 it's not that it's just anxiety i'm sorry no you're right to skip the cracks that's where the demons are and it's a much more interesting <laughs> world where you actually believe in this as i do. and so you think that have we lost it yeah we need a more demon-haunted, enchanted oh, world. You, what happens if your kids take their shoes off in your apartment and they're the, the feet? Oh, they, they, the know, be, they, they know better. They know better. So you're like, oh, my mom was so crazy, blah, blah, blah. You do it too. Well, I'm not saying my mom was so crazy. My mom was right to raise me. She was me. 100% correct. <laughs> with, and with I will the, do everything she says. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. So, so Lily and Hudson are being raised with you are passing on your superstitions to them. 100%. And you hope that they will pass it. Like, God willing, it gives you many grandchildren. When we don't even wear shoes anymore. I because robots that they walk would for us. They fight have to the stay in the right direction. As I had fought the demons. <laughs> I'm so terrified to come to come to the Upper West Side and visit you next time. It's like, like what if I take my shoes off wrong? They're little buffy vampire slayers.
So look, when we decided to do this show on on Jewish superstitions, um, one of our producers, Shira Talishkin, went all in. She was she was all about this particular uh, episode. Um, and we'll also say, like, it took us a few tries to get this show off the ground. Like some might say, it was cursed. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, Shira joins us today. Hello, hello, Shira. Hey guys. So this is an episode you were really excited about and ha- really, really involved in helping put together. Yeah, I think on the one hand, I'm very like grew up with a lot of superstitions and I find them really interesting. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that for a lot of people, and this was true for a lot of our listeners who called in and for people that we've talked to who you're going to hear on the show, they might not keep any aspect of what we think of as traditional Jewish practice, right? So there's people who like don't keep kosher, they don't go to synagogue, they like don't really care, but like they would never have a baby shower. They would not have upturned shoes. Like they would not name their child after a living parent. And there's a, I think when we talk about Jewish practice, we often talk about like the spiritual dimensions or the community dimensions. Um, but we don't, but like they don't actually do anything in Judaism, right? So like if you're Catholic, there's a lot of stuff that if you do or you don't do, like you go to hell. Like that's really bad. Like you want to be a good Catholic because the ramifications are like not amazing. Um, But in Judaism, it's like not actually clear what happens to you if you do stuff. And superstitions are this one area of Jewish practice where it's just like, oh my God, like if I don't do this, like something bad might happen. It's one area where you could, you could be controlled. It's, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 has, and it's like like the word is that's used is efficacious. It's like an act that like does something in the world. Like it actually like impacts the world. And it's like a very direct relationship. Um, and so like that was super interesting to me. And the fact that they're so personal. So like, again, like I grew up with tons of like my mom, like knocks on the doors of an empty room before she enters to alert the demons. And wait, every time she enters an empty room. Yeah, because like they're meeting and you I mean, just she's wanna... going around. Let's say you leave the house and you haven't made your bed and she's thinking I'll straighten up and she's about to walk into your room like knock, knock, knock. Yeah. Dozens of times a day, I'm guessing. Well, I, I mean, how often do you close all the doors? We live in Manhattan. It's like there's not that many doors. I, I, like... I do that. Wow. I'm a total primitive. I'm like straight out of some village in like the 13th century. I will jump in, Mark, and say like this is what is so interesting is that nobody knows what someone else's family does. It like brings us back to like pre-shtetl times when every village did their own (laughs) Jewish customs and it developed and it's passed down family to family. And the village of Great Neck, they didn't get in the third subway car (laughs) apparently. No, but like- We didn't ride the subway at Great Neck. It's amazing what I'm learning about all of you. Exactly. And like, but again, like I didn't hear any, like I didn't know about the like chewing a thread thing, which it seems like everyone and their mother did. And so there's like a really personal aspect of it that like we lost the oral tradition of Jews Jewish like life way back when but um but it's like totally survived in these weird things that people do and like so so what are some of these traditions i mean there's apparently this extraordinary history and there's lots of them in talmud which i want to ask you about in a moment but are there some traditions that that we've lost like you had mentioned one in weddings that we don't seem to have anymore um well there's a lot that we've like totally lost but we also don't realize how much of jewish practice today is actually based on this belief of demons so people tend to think like oh judaism got this reputation post enlightenment for being rational um and like also when like maimonides became the face of judaism for a couple like ashkenazi people fake news fake fake news to the max but a lot of art so what happened there is that a lot of the like demonic superstitious um, beliefs kind of got stripped away. So like, okay, one so good example. There were more. 
like well just like they were real so like one good example that everyone that a lot of people know is that at weddings um after like the thing that ends the wedding ceremony is the groom will usually like smash a glass um and everyone yells mazel tov and whatever and like what are some of the reasons you guys have heard for why we do that oh because you smash the glass into a million pieces and you can't fully fully put it back together and the universe was shattered Right. And- I've heard that one. I've also heard that it recalls the destruction of the second temple and how there's joy even in destruction. The joy can rise from the ashes in a sense. If you go to a Jewish wedding and the, the officiant isn't like, well, there are several reasons. Right. People so disagree. Many. It's like part of the wedding now so is many. to tell right. people but how many reasons the there are. The reason they're like probably not going to give is um, – so the way this, this ritual uh, used to go is uh, he would drink the wine. And then he would he would drink the cup and then smash it against the wall, right? And so if you go to a lot of synagogues like throughout Europe, there's a special stone on the synagogue wall that For is smashing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it usually has like a star of David and like a pasuk, like a verse from the Bible on it. And it's a stone where you would smash everything. And what it was was you were giving wine to the sitra acher to the dark side, so that you were to uh, pr- kind of satiate them and have them not Confuse attack them. the couple. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'd be like, okay. That's so much better than what we have now. Like, I, I love the, the idea that you smash it. It's very romantic. It's like sexy. See? I also just want to note that even from like kind of the earliest times of Jewish tradition coming together, rabbinic Judaism coming together, um, a lot of these sort of medicinal beliefs and sort of superstition beliefs were really the domain of Jewish women were often passed down through mothers and grandmothers. And even today, right, it's kind of like, do you believe in superstitions or did your grandma have any superstitions? People aren't as much like, oh, like your grandpa probably What did your grandpa things. do? Yeah. That's a, no, that's a terrific point. And, you know, Shurtzlishkin, we're so glad to be the beneficiary of your weird obsession with uh, with, with superstitions. You know everything. Here's, here's the good news, right, is that in this in this episode that, that Shira and Josh helped us put together, we, we, we realized that these, these practices they continue to abound. They aren't as widely embraced and maybe they aren't quite as crazy. But you know what? As you guys made clear, as you and the J Crew made clear by calling into our to our voicemail superstition hotline, the crazy has not gone out of the Jews. So we are here to take you on a Jewish journey of superstition. We have a number of stops on this weird, accursed train. Shira Talushkin and Josh Cross left the offices, went to the other side of the shtetl, also known as uh, the sidewalk in front of Kosher Marketplace on the Upper West Side, and got some of uh, New Yorkers' favorite superstitions. Can we ask you, do you have any uh, superstitions in your life or did your family grow up with any superstitions? My mom has them. Um, When we go to family functions like weddings, bar mitzvahs, she has our family wear red somewhere inside our clothing to ward off the evil eye. So um, before I had my kids, she didn't want me to buy clothing. Rabbit's foot all the time. In fact, I have a rabbit's foot coming over here. I am a rabbit. There's you don't whistle backstage. Basically, it comes from the legend of used to the stagehands used to be seamen. And the seamen take their cues by whistles. So if somebody's whistling backstage, they don't know if they're taking the cues from whatever, so it's you don't whistle backstage. I am the superstition queen, despite an Ivy League education and a graduate degree. When I have new grandchildren, I put red bendelach around everything. Number 13 is on the way, with another red bendel on the way too. And when there's a wedding or something like that, they have to wear a red bendel. And just the other day, I was asking somebody about how to get rid of the ayanhara. Don't walk over somebody, because then they won't grow. If somebody sewed something on us, you had to bite the thread. And my grandma had a really crazy story about her aunt was very, very sick. 
And in the shtetl, they actually took an empty coffin with her name on it to the cemetery so that she wouldn't die, and she got better. I told you you hit the right person. If someone goes to Israel and they gives me a red string, I'll wear it, but I don't necessarily... I'm not that into that kind of stuff. Anything that just makes you feel better, makes you feel safe or protected, whatever it is, I think is just worth doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm very superstitious. I don't walk underneath flatters, and I don't like when black hats cross me. You know, all the stuff that we grew up watching, Halloween and all that crazy stuff, you know, you get a little paranoid. But I find that uh, when I stray away from the ladders, I have good luck. If I go underneath a ladder, something tends to happen. Black cat crossed me one time, walked underneath the ladder, same day, car accident. I'm hedging my bets. Um, I'm not really that superstitious, but I think it came from my mom being very superstitious but never having reasons for anything. Whenever my nieces and nephews were born, she would always tell us don't show a baby his, his or her reflection until they have teeth. I don't know the origin of it. I don't know what will happen if you do. How, how can you be superstitious when you never really knew why? I never say anything too nice about my kids without saying God willing or Leah and her. I don't even think about it. I just go with it and follow all my superstitions to their illogical conclusions. If you rub your chin against a furry microphone like I'm doing, then there'll be no line in the deli when I get in there. Okay, so my friend, when he goes to watch a football team, my friend Alex Rubin in London, when he goes to watch his favorite football team, Arsenal, if they lose a the game, he has a scarf that he's had with him since he was four years old, and it has tassels on it. And every time they lose a game, he pulls off one of the tassels. It's almost like a pseudo-religious, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, there's not many left. Great, well, thank you. <laughs> Put a coat on. That's what I said. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We're fortunate to have more than one in-house superstition maven here at Tablet Magazine. Our editor-in-chief, Alana Newhouse, is in fact a, 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 a woman deeply in love with superstition. I will put it like this. You've just heard me and where I come from. <laughs> Alana is the most superstitious person I know. Whoa. <laughs> so we we sat down with Alana. I'm the LeBron of superstition. She's the Michael Jordan. She's the Michael I mean, Jordan. A whole new level. Is Stephanie the Magic I'm Johnson? I'm Dwayne Wade. <laughs> we sat down with Alana Newhouse a few weeks ago, and she took us into the world of superstition, Newhouse style. We are here with Alana Newhouse. She's the founder and editor of Tablet Magazine. Uh, we know her well. We like her a lot. And we are just happy to be here with you, Alana, to talk superstition. Thanks so much for having me. And we should say, you're the most superstitious person I know, like by leaps and bounds. Just means you know the wrong people. <laughs> 
was were superstitions a part of your life when you were growing up? These yes. are like they were sort of a new thing to me. But were you raised with? Yes, um, I my mother's family is uh, from Ladino speaking Sephardic Jews, and my father's family is from Yiddish speaking Ashkenaz Jews. Um, and my mother's side of the family um, was deeply superstitious. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Um, with whom I was close uh, for most of my adult, most of my life, including up until um, my adult life, um, was very superstitious. So share, share some of these superstitions. What weren't you allowed to do as a kid to not upset the demons? There are so many things, um, but the thing that I remember the most was um, we were never allowed to give knives as a, as a gift, as part of a gift. So um, when my mother would give um, wedding gifts, if she gave a challah plate, she would never give the knife along with the challah plate. Um, she would never buy flatware for anyone. Um, and actually, um, there was some, it, it even went so far as um, that there was some way in which we were supposed to set the table um, where we were supposed to set knives last. And it, the knives have to had to be on the table after the brachot. Um, so you had to say kiddush. And do hamotzi of the challah, and then you could put out everyone's because knives. Because the knives will um, summon warfare and bad feelings. The idea was was that if you gave a gift of a knife, um, what you were telling someone was that you wanted to have a fight, um, and that knives represented hostility um, and conflict. So it was seen as very bad luck, particularly around the idea that you'd have conflict in a family or around a family table um, was very radioactive. Even though we fought all the time. Maybe we, I mean, I don't know what the knives, I don't know how much the knives could have possibly helped us. So did all that stuff make sense to you? Was it just what your family did? Or did you think it was, it was a little nutty? It made complete sense to me. I mean, it made as much sense to me as anything else as um, stopping all work on Friday as not eating on Yom Kippur and other fast days. I mean, it didn't, it didn't strike me as any more or less rational than anything else we did. See, but it's interesting you say that because you grew up in a religious household. So did you understand that there was some sort of division between no. religion and superstition? No, They're I both did the not. same. I did not, yes. And Believing I, means the demons and halacha, both together. Y- yes, and, and I should be specific that it's not because I was taught superstitions in school, um, although it was probably bandied about by kids or parents or the parents of other of my friends, but it was, it's an atmospheric and it was part of uh, our general lives. You know, but it's also kind of interesting because I don't think that I could say that my life could be parsed between what was my religious life and what was my non-religious life. We didn't have those divisions. Your life was your life. Um, So the idea that superstitions weren't distinct inside of religion Makes as little sense as superstition as religion being parsed from secular. Life. But I love the word that you use, atmospherics. I mean, in a way, they're that much more powerful. I know, growing up, you know, to to understand why you know God wants us to do one thing or another is one thing, but to say to a kid something like, "If you leave a book open, the demons will come and steal all your knowledge," that actually makes weird sense to a child, no? Yeah, and then yes, and also you know, I think that because so much of um, of Jewish practice and Jewish observance involves things that do have their rooting in Jewish law, but if you wanted to, you could see them as having valence 
from a superstition perspective, for example, wearing a kippah, right? I know what the actual halachic... Do not upset God by showing him your head. He will strike you down. Right? Exactly. Like, you could certainly see it as being, as something that could, that was related to the idea of superstition or um, something as less than rational. But at some point you broke with one, the religious part, and you preserved the other. No, I broke with both, but then I came back to superstition first. Okay. Um, Why? How? Tell us. Um... Well, I broke with both because I went to college <laughs> and uh, started reading other things. Um, and I just, um, I started engaging more with the outside world. I became very interested in politics and very interested in culture and art um, and in other religions and in science and in economics. And I wanted to understand whether there were more... Um, simpler explanations for some things. Um, and science offers a bunch of simple explanations um, that feel, that felt at the time for me um, clearer and more believable. Um, so for me, a bunch of uh, religious practice um, started to feel oppressive. And so I, I'd say I started to stray um, and then um, wholly abandon a lot of the religious practice that I grew up with. Um, when I did that, the superstition went with it because again, it wasn't, the, they weren't disconnected. So I, I didn't see them as separate. But when my life changed uh, later on, what came roaring back was a belief in superstition first. When is that? Is that when you have a family of your own and you sort of start thinking about the traditions that you want so certain things came back when I was pregnant. Um, interestingly, um, when I was pregnant, um, I went to the supermarket with my stepdaughter, and there was one of those uh, quarter machines, and the quarter machine spit out a red bracelet, a red string bracelet that has a little wooden fish on it. Um, and my stepdaughter looked at me and said, you should wear it. It'll probably be good luck for the baby. It's not a Kabbalah bracelet because it came from key food, right? But, <laughs> it's a um, Kabbalah bracelet. Right, it's a Kabbalah bracelet, <laughs> right? Um, and, but, but what was interesting was, was that when she said that, there was a part of me that, that took heed. I, I didn't know whether or not she or key food uh, was a messenger from something, but I decided that I should wear that bracelet. Okay, hold on. I, I want to pause here and, and play, you know, inside the superstitious person's studio. Take us through this process. So you hear this thing, which is not a thing, right? It's it's not based in tradition. It's not, you know, a long-held belief. It has no explanation. Someone said something, and then you decide, okay, I'm going to do this. What goes on through your mind? What if she's right? I mean, I think it's just as simple as that. Um, what if she's right? What if I'm supposed to wear this red string? And, why take the chance? Why risk right, it? Right. Why risk it? Why not wear um, it? All of a sudden, my brain imagined a world in which that was something I was supposed to hear in that moment. And it would be deeply irresponsible for me to hear it and understand its meaning and ignore it. Do you think that the idea of why not do these things? Do you think that is what sort of undergirds the Jewish 
the way we sort of lean on superstition? Like, well, I don't know. But for me, what's interesting is, is um, I, my relationship to superstition is negative. It's not positive. So I don't um, perform any acts because I believe that they're going to um, cause millions of dollars to rain on my head or for um, me to have a cupcake every single day. I perform to the extent that I adhere to any of this, it's out of a belief that I will avoid harm for me or my loved ones. So for me, it's a, it's, it definitely exists in a negative space, not a positive space. I don't think that's how the world works. My sense, um, and, and I understand that history doesn't bear this out, but my sense is, is that it is fair to ask God for protection from harm. I would never be so presumptuous to ask God to get me a yacht or a billion dollars. That doesn't feel like what we get to ask of God. And, and, I, and I say that with the, the absolute understanding that many, many people, many, many good people don't even get protection from God. But somehow of the things to ask for, I think shielding from danger and from harm is... You made me, you keep me. Right. Um, That that somehow feels more um, legitimate as an ask. So could you give us a few examples of of things you do now that you almost don't even think about doing? Sure. I mean, well, so you... You asked me before um, when it all started, and it it, it definitely did start um, when I was pregnant. Um, But then my son last year had a seizure, and it was a particularly intense seizure. And when we were in the hospital afterwards, they gave us a medication um, for... And it's if if he should have another seizure, if it should last a certain amount of time, you're supposed to give him this medication to stop the seizure. And what they explained to us is, is that actually seizures are fairly common, particularly among small children. And if he were to have another seizure within the next six months, it would be um, a reason to uh, see him as potentially epileptic and then give him epilepsy medication. If he were to not have another seizure within six months, then it's considered a one-off. And it's idiopathic. So I carried around this seizure medication with me in my bag at all times for seven months. At at the seven and a half month mark, I woke up that morning and I was looking through my bag and I said, you know what? I don't need this anymore because it's seven and a half months. I not only did I meet the deadline, but I even went past it a little bit. And so I took the seizure medication out of my bag, and that day he had another one. And I know it's nutty, right? (laughs) But it scared the shit out of me. And I'm sure I'm never, I'm not gonna take that thing out of my bag. I'm sure he's gonna be in college, and I'm still gonna be walking around with that thing in my bag. Um, But, and thankfully he's fine, and that second seizure was actually not a big deal at all, and it was uh, very mild, but, it knock on wood. Right, thank God. But um but it it was the kind of thing that once it happened, it made complete sense to me. So do superstitions have anything to do with God in, in your mind? Do they have anything to do with that relationship? Sort of. So in this I think it's interesting. I think the best way to answer that is that I have been intellectually and theologically and 
emotionally very affected by post-Holocaust theological debates. Um, And I was particularly affected by the question um, of whether or not the covenant with God is still operative. Um, And in this, to the extent that I would recommend um, anything to anyone else, I would definitely recommend Shaul Magid's read of um, the Warsaw Ghetto Rabbi and his sermons in the Warsaw Ghetto and his theology. And Shaul has a read of um, Rabbi Shapiro's work that I think strikes me as psychologically right, um, according to which he believes that um, the rabbi, after witnessing truly freakish barbarism, a barbarism and uh, gruesome hatred um, on par with literally nothing else than anyone in human history could recall, eventually called it what it was. He said it's unparalleled and unprecedented, which in theological terms means it's a break from tradition. So then the question becomes, is the covenant with God still operative? I don't know. And I'm not sure. And I don't know if God speaks to us anymore. And I don't know what our relationship with God is. Here's what I do know. That for hundreds of years, Jews, particularly Jews in Eastern Europe, but Jews all over, um, had an understanding that there was a universe between them and God. That universe was populated by spirits, messengers, golems, Mm -hmm. dibbics. And those um, beings were intermediaries between God and the earth. Um, And those Jews believed that those intermediaries were operative in their lives. I guess what I wonder is maybe they're still operative in our lives, even even and maybe in exchange for God not being operative. So maybe our covenant with God is broken, um, but we still are able to communicate um, with God um, through our behavior. Is that so? Is that comforting? Yes. Certainly more comforting than believing that God just abandoned us and there's no more God. And that is more or less the premise of Soloveitchik's Lonely Man of Faith, right? Correct. Is that we still do this, but we have to do this through community and communion with one another rather than individually, the superstitious way. Oh, that's funny. I never saw superstition as being lonely. Don't um, you think it is? No. I see it as is forging relationships between me and other people. Um, if if I make sure that I never give someone a knife, <laughs> <laughs> we will never ever that's, fight. That's as you not, never fought with your mother. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> uh, imagine if she give, if she had given me a knife. I was about um, to say. I don't see superstitions as being lonely at all. In fact, if you imagine that they're connecting you to a whole population of intermediaries between you and God, whether those things are forms of energy or spirits or dibics or um, or other human beings, you're never alone. Right. But every other, like literally every other commandment or, you know, communal obligation that you have in Judaism has to be performed together with other people uh, from prayer to, you know, celebrations to anything. Superstition. Less so for women. 
That's true. fewer of the of female obligations get done um, communally. Um, so I don't know that I necessarily have that as a, a model. So are there, is there anything that you do that if you feel like people found out that they might think was like a little wacky? Yes, but why would I tell you? Because <laughs> I want to. I want to know so I can do it. Um. Okay. Fine. So there's one part in the Shulchan Aruch that actually explains the way that you're supposed to put on your shoes. You're supposed to put your right shoe on first, and then your left shoe, and then you're supposed to tie your left shoe and then tie your right shoe. Um, and I, um, that is how I put on my shoes or boots. Um, and it's also how I put on my son's shoes, which when, for anybody who's had a toddler knows, you basically just try your best to get their various items on in whatever way you possibly can. And the idea of having a method of clothing them is insane. Um, is insane. And yet I will, I did it and still do it all the time. That was Alana Newhouse sitting down with Liel and Stephanie a few weeks ago and telling us about a very complicated way to put shoes on a toddler. By the way, it's so intimate to hear these details about it someone is. else's life. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. You know I put shoes on a toddler? Put your goddamn shoes on. There are four <laughs> others of you. You're we have to like get out the door. shoes everywhere to like feet everywhere in your Pick house. Pick two <laughs> shoes that are hopefully of opposite feet and get them on before if you want, if you want dinner. Any two shoes. Any two shoes. <laughs> what do you mean they're tight? You think Goody you think shoes. they complained about tight shoes in the shuttle? <laughs> Hey J Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. My grandmother had a superstition that the height that you held the Havdalah candle during Havdalah was how tall your husband was going to be. So whenever we were being sort of lazy and holding it about our waist, she would make sure we lifted our hands up high. If you're having 
a piece of clothing tailored. You can't put it on a bed while it's still in progress. The clothing will be put to sleep, meaning it'll take the tailor a long time to finish the project. Whenever someone lost a button, a seam unraveled, or some mishap that required a needle and thread, she would make them take off the garment before doing a little bit of sewing because, quote, if you sew on yourself, you'll sew up your brains, unquote. When you're having clothing altered or clothing fitted, my grandmother would always have us um, hold the string in our mouth. You're not supposed to step over anybody's legs when you're sitting around in a living room or something because it means that their uh, limbs won't grow properly. When we're going on a journey, everybody sits for a moment of silence. It's ceremoniously introduced with the word seli, which means uh, we sat, and then uh, the action's completed with the words Stali, we got up. I just knew I couldn't whistle in the house. And he would extend this to Shabbat and say we weren't allowed to whistle on Shabbat. It was thought that whistling would bring bad luck and threaten your parnasa, your financial welfare. From one shtetl to another, we asked our roving correspondent, Skylar Inman, host of the excellent podcast Intractable, to go up to Amuka, uh, a gravesite up a windy road up a mountain in northern Israel uh, to visit the grave of Rabbi Yonatan Benoziel, who is believed to posthumously bless people who want to find love. The place you just heard me mention, Amuka, is the location of a tiny building with big religious meaning. You see, the gravesite that sits inside the building at Amuka is a popular pilgrimage destination. And according to the lore, single Jewish men and women who pray there will meet their soulmates within the year. Except there's a catch. Because Amuka is located in the hills of northern Israel, not so far from the border with Lebanon or the Sea of Galilee, and to get there means driving up and down rocky roads, twisting and turning through the Biria forest, just north of the ancient city of Tzfat. And the car I'm in sounds like its engine is just barely up for the job. It's really steep here. You feel the air pressure? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> the car belongs to Moshe, the driver, who also happens to be my boyfriend's father. Now, how exactly I, a young, non-Jewish woman, found myself hitching a ride from my Israeli boyfriend's father to Israel's number one prayer site for Jewish singles is a slightly longer story. So let's go back to the beginning. So in Jewish theology, there's a concept that God is everywhere. And so you can pray anywhere. But in Jewish tradition, there's a special extra uh, tacked on to if you go visit a grave. This is Gila Levitan, a fantastic Australian-Israeli tour guide whom I met in Tel Aviv months ago. Gila leads trips of all kinds through her company, Walk About Israel, and is this amazing one-woman Wikipedia when it comes to the nooks and crannies of Jewish history here. So naturally, when I got an email from Mark, Stephanie, and Liel a couple of weeks ago asking me to go and check out Amuka and its traditions, Gila was the first person I messaged. 
And that really comes from the uh, mystical idea that um, a tzaddik, which is a righteous person, when they ascend to heaven, they go directly to heaven, whereas um, us normal people have to uh, have to be judged for our deeds and see if we're good or bad. And mystically, there's still a little bit of your soul left with your body. So if people go to the graves, then it's like this direct line to God, direct line to heaven. It's a hotline. Yeah, exactly. It's a hotline to heaven. Now, Amuka is far from the only grave that believers go to in order to pray. So I asked Gila, what makes Amuka special? What sets it apart from the other graves? And why is it this place in particular, where so many unmarried people go to pray to meet their soulmate? The one that's in Amuka is Yonatan ben Uziel, who was a student of Gilel the Elder, one of these famous rabbis. And they say about him that um, he's teachings were so sweet that all the angels would gather around on top of his head to hear it and then if a bird flew above it they'd get burned because you had these angels um, around him Um, but he didn't ever marry and he said before he died that anybody that came to pray at my grave um, they'd be blessed um, with a partner. And Gila it turns out gave it a try or two herself. I think it was one time I had a friend who was studying in Svat and I went up to her for the weekend and she told me about this place, Amuka. And so I went there um, and I did the whole procedure of what you have to do and I got a key or you buy a key or you give charity money and then they give you a key. And the whole idea is that you're meant to hold on to the key and then you'll get married. And that key broke, so I'm still not married. So it worked for my friend who was studying there because really? she went there and she's now married. But she had a boyfriend before she was there in the yeshiva. And another friend of mine, when I told her about this and she came to visit me, she wanted to do it because we were in the area on a different trip. And we went and did it and she's getting married now. But I think I lost my keys. So maybe third time's a charm and I need to go there again. I don't know. With Gila's assurances that it really did work, I did what any good journalist would do. I found a native Hebrew speaker to contact the yeshiva directly in order to inquire about the best day to go visit the gravesite. Naturally, the intermediary I chose was the one I live with, my boyfriend, Yoav. Shalom. Eventually, the yeshiva's hold music, which was a romantic adaptation of the Eshet Chayel prayer, sung by Israeli pop sensation Ben Al-Tavori, gave way to a very kind man who told Yoav that the best day to come is on Erev Rosh Chodesh, the day before the new moon, which gave me about 48 hours to get things sorted out. The only problem was, I couldn't find a single driver who wanted to pick me up from Tel Aviv and drive me three hours north to a gravesite in the middle of the woods. After a great deal of stressing and complaining on my part, Yoav finally perked up with a solution. He had an idea of someone who might be willing to make the trip with me. His dad, Moshe. 
there's lots of people. The drive up to Amuka is long, more than the three hours we had budgeted for it, and on the way, Moshe and I talk about all kinds of things. He's excited because, he says, this visit to the gravesite is almost as foreign for him as it is for me. And by the time we roll up into the parking lot, we're both ready to see what's in store. For all of its fabled mystical powers, Amuka is a pretty simple place. You park at the bottom of a sloped pathway that's divided for women on one side and men on the other. And just as the man from the yeshiva had promised, there was a steady stream of believers coming in already. The building itself, up the hill a little ways, was a small square built from limestone, with a gift shop just outside its front doors, where visitors to the grave could buy all sorts of romantic knickknacks. A key like the one Gila mentioned, a glass that your future husband can break at the wedding, Talit, which you can save to give as a gift to your betrothed once you meet him. And it was in that very gift shop that I met Ephraim, whose family has been taking care of the gravesite for the past 30 years. My name is, uh, call me Ephraim. My mother here, she built this place. She all the time studied Torah, and she cleaned the place. Ephraim gave me the basic rundown of Yonatan ben Uziel. Great guy, fantastic Torah scholar, very much single for his whole life. He tells me all kinds of people come to visit the place because it's just so special. And I ask him if non-Jews come to pray too. He says, not many, but yeah. And does it work? Yeah, people get married, healthy, success. When you pray, you not pray to the rabbi. Bishkut mm-hmm. rabbi. So you, ask, make, make you ask him to help you, yeah, basically. Help you. Yeah. So if someone comes here to pray... For marriage, what do they need to do? You want to do this? Maybe. Do this for you. I show you the prayer to read. You need to do this and this. You sing it, eh? Ephraim, who's already in the motion of collecting the things I need in order to complete the ceremony, looks back at me for a second as if he's double checking for a wedding ring. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm not married. You go inside the rabbi, you read this one time inside the rabbi. Okay. Give you candle. Okay, candle. Candle, come and show you. So it, it first inside the rabbi you read this one time. Okay. After you light the candle there, you make a wish for you. Uh, black thing right there? Yeah, you make a wish for you, for a sister not here, friend. Mm-hmm. After you go on the top on the roof. You do seven circles, you see people, you should go from there, there. Yeah. Whole circle, you repeat this one time. And you can think about your sister. And in English, it's okay? Yeah. Um, so if I do this for myself, does that mean I, like, it's going to happen, like, this year? or This year. Wow, okay, so I have to be careful. Yeah. If I don't want to get married this year, I shouldn't do that. Why? <laughs> Not be alone. Not good. Right. Okay. I told Ephraim I'd think about it, but that I had to talk to some more people first. So I pocketed the little candles and the match folding up the sheets of paper he'd given me with the English prayer printed on it. Ephraim, probably assuming I was just being shy, tried to offer me an out as I walked away. You can also think about someone else who wants to get married, he said, not yourself. Do okay. think, uh, when you do the circle, think about your uh, friend. Okay, someone. Some someone friend, think this. about them. Say okay. the name. Yeah, okay. Michelle Moses, uh, Jimmy. 
Throughout the afternoon, people streamed in from near and far, mothers and fathers praying for their children to meet the one, like David, a Frenchman who arrived with his two marriage-aged sons. I've got my, my son studying here. So they are in a, they've got a week of uh, holidays, uh-huh. so uh, I, uh, I rent a car and take him to all the tzaddikim. Whoever never get married, uh-huh. when he comes and pray here, is uh, to, to, to get married in the year. So are you hoping for that for your son? Why not? They've got uh, 21, uh, this, uh, this one is 19. Do you hear yeah. stories of this? Happening? Yeah, a lot of stories, yeah. In the car, my son told me that his friend was here last year, and uh, two months later, he's gone married. There was also Masha, a woman who, as she boarded her bus back to Jerusalem, casually dropped the fact that she was visiting the tomb for what you might call professional reasons. It's a special place to pray, and so there's a lot of things that people need, and I came to Davin for a lot of people. I have a lot going on in my life, but I decided today is a day that I was going to take off and think about others. I think that's my bus going, so that's I can't awesome. even say. Okay. Was it for and, love specifically today? Well, this is a, a fantastic place for, for praying for a person's soulmate. And I actually happen to be a matchmaker, so I also... No way! Yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> but most people I spoke with were a bit bashful, backing away shyly as I told them what I was doing and insisting that they couldn't possibly have anything interesting to say. One visitor, a middle-aged woman, offered me some advice. You're going to ask a lot of people here if they're praying for their own zivug, and a lot of them are, she told me. But almost everyone will tell you that they're here to pray for someone else's match. But not everyone was shy. There were even success stories. One woman, Miriam, when she overheard me asking someone else if they believed in the tradition, leaned over and said, well, it worked for me. Basically, I came with my mother and a family friend, and we went and we prayed in the kever, and then we were coming out of the kever, and the guy said, you're here for to find your zivuk, and I said, yeah. So he said, go take this paper and go up to the dome, there's a dome on top, and walk around seven times, same as Mola David, and say the Hiratzon, and hopefully by next year you'll be married. So I went, I went up, I went seven times around, and I said it, and then, yeah, we prayed, and as we came down, my friend said, hopefully next year you'll come, and you'll say thank you, you'll come back, and with your husband, you'll say thank you to Hashem for the gift he gave you. So... Yeah, this I got married um, August about less than two months ago, wow. and me and my husband just came back. I came from America. We came on a trip to Israel, and we said the one place I want to go is Amuka. So we came here. <laughs> so how did it feel to pray here when you were still single? Was it something that you you like felt like you knew it would work, or was it kind of just something? That I mean, you it wasn't my first time here. I'd been here a couple a couple of times before, but we were here last year and on summer vacation. So we stopped by. <laughs> wow. Any idea why it worked the last time? Um, I don't know if it was this or if it was many other things that we did throughout the trip, but you know, I guess eventually the all the prayers add up. As the afternoon faded into evening and the sun began to dip below the hilltops, I had to confront my options. On the one hand, there was something stubborn within me that almost bristled at the tradition's implications, that people aren't whole until they're married. On the other hand, though, if anything feels apt for divine intervention, it would certainly be love. So I figured, why not? I walked up the stone path to the tomb, and I joined the people praying there. 
I walked out to the iron structure Ephraim had showed me, and I lit the candles he had given me. Moshe, waiting for me on the stairs with a bemused little smile, walked up to the roof with me and helped me count. Seven times around the blue dome as I circled it. He took a video of me to send to the family WhatsApp as I did it. You know, if you do it, it means you have to get married this year, Moshe. (laughs) How do you feel about that? He gave me in Hebrew. Oh, you have it too. Look for the book. I told him yes. <laughs> so he gave me and, and he explained to me. And then it was done. I did everything. I went around it seven times. All right. I'll let you know if it happens. <laughs> when you success, you need to say thank you to the rabbi. So I come back. Yeah. Okay. And who knows? Maybe one day I'll be back. That was Skylar Inman. Go check out her podcast, Intractable, on iTunes and other free platforms. If you're with a friend or a family member and you both walk on opposite sides of a pole, a telephone pole or something along those lines, that you'll get angry with them. And and the only way to break the curse, essentially, is to say bread and butter. When my mom was growing up in Newark, New Jersey, her grandmother would tell her, Never say goodbye. Always say so long. My mom and her siblings didn't think much of it until one day she and her sister were walking down the street and saw a cute little bird. As they walked by, they said, goodbye, little bird. And a car drove by and ran it over. After eating an egg, you need to crush the shell into small pieces to ensure fertility. I will not tell stories about Shadim or Lilith around pregnant women or small children, Lilith is the bane of pregnant women and small children. You're not supposed to pour water from a pitcher backhand over your wrist because that's how the Hebra Kedisha pours the water over a corpse. When there's a family birthday, my dad will always cross out the name on top of the birthday cake before cutting cake slices. This always seemed somewhat Jewish to me but not specifically so. My grandmother has a poem that she has my mom say before she goes in for an MRI. We are your sheep, you are our wolves, we are not afraid of us, you will not eat us. I was raised to never say goodbye, although bye is somehow okay, and I still feel a twinge of fear every every time it slips out. Thanks, bye. Guys, this whole episode just making me think like we need our own superstitions. Like yes. maybe for a live show. Like what are we gonna do? I wanna get yeah. I wanna yeah. I wanna get weird. Like ever okay, so the superstition begins like before a live like the Talmudic superstition rendering begins before a live show, Reb Shloimi Ben Schmoikel says, You must <laughs> Liel, what must you do? You must drink, or else the demons come. <laughs> Bourbon wards off the demons. I think, okay, here's what I think you do. So I, I think it'll be a three-part thing. Well, it'll be additive, right? First, it's, like, it's like you say the first word of the sentence. <laughs> right, so, so, so Liel's give us first, you drink. Then, But I, I think, think there should be a specific thing and for a reason. Okay. That's right. Okay. So you First, you throw a shot over your left shoulder. <laughs> In the green room of the JCC. In the green room Manhattan. of the JCC. Sorry, you say Ma- Marlene Meyerson. And then, yeah. You then pour another shot 
uh, the three hosts and the and the producers all pour shots past the shot to the left in a circle, at which point you each down the shot and say, uh, we miss Molly Yay. Okay, and then when we step onto the stage, you have to step on with your left foot, oh, like going on to hitting the stage first. Yes, yes. And, and then, then we have to walk around the chairs and back that's to right. sit in them. For See, this to me is, is raising my... Like my blood pressure, and I'm getting I'm getting anxious thinking about like okay, I step with my like so, just be considerate. Of, we'll be considerate. Of the, 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 well, <laughs> if you do it wrong, then you just re- retrace your steps, walking backwards into the green room, do yeah. another shot, and come back out. That's and right. then the demons will say, "Super relaxed." The demons will say, "Oh snap, they mean business, and they will have a great show." Uh, we hope you all thought we've had a great show. We think we've had a great show. Thank you for joining us to talk about superstitions. We know we missed a lot. We know we missed your favorite superstition. We know that you have thoughts, hopes, dreams that we'll talk superstitions again. We will. Send us an email at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us. Leave those superstitions on the voicemail line, 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. We want to hear about your superstitions. You can also talk to us about your superstitions at our upcoming live shows. We will be in San Diego on January 31st and in Seattle on February 2nd. You can go to the respective uh, websites of the JCCs in those towns to check us out. But before that, we will be at Washington Hebrew Congregation as guests of WHC and the Association of Reformed Jewish Educators. That's January 15th. It's um, Washington Hebrew Congregation's website that has all the details. It's a free show, so get your tickets now. We'll see you January 15th in Washington, D.C. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Thank you for being part of our Superstition episode. If you want to communicate with us about it, you can follow us on assorted social media. Instagram is at Unorthodox Podcast, and on Twitter, we're at Unorthodox underscore pod. If you want to book us for a live show or advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. And of course, you want to wear and carry Unorthodox, hit up bit.ly slash unorthoshirt for shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our podcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Talushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our editor is Sophia Steiner Evoy. And we don't say it enough, but Tablet's editor is Alana Newhouse. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Andrew Shapiro Katz of the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. And a place that seems haunted to us, but in a good way, is Argo Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs>